God's word says to outdo one another in showing honor. And so before we dive into Psalm 73, I want to just take a minute to honor uh, your lead pastor. Mark, I'm grateful for you. I love you. Thank you, Katie and the kids for being such wonderful hosts for me this weekend. It's so evident to me to see what God is doing in the life of this church. Thank you for inviting me to spend time with the men this weekend. It was a sweet blessing to me. Um, What a joy it is to worship with you this morning, to sing praises together of our triune God. And I just want to, again, affirm God is working in this church. And I hope, I hope if you're a member here especially, that you are grateful to be a part of a congregation that preaches God's word, that lifts up Jesus Christ and has a passion to see his glory among all nations. Before we dive in, let's pray one more time. Would you pray with me? Our good and gracious God, our heavenly Father, we ask now that you would open the bread of life to us. Break open your word and feed us. Speak to us, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. All for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved son who lives with you and who reigns with you together with the Holy Spirit. One God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. I imagine that for most of us, it's not the catastrophic headline-grabbing events that challenge our souls the most. Instead, I imagine it's those daily, quiet onslaught of frustrations and disappointments that over time can erode our confidence in the goodness of God. Godly desires unfulfilled, best laid plans falling through, faithful prayers unanswered, God honoring dreams crushed, a friend who moves away, a promotion that never comes, A relationship that never materializes. Desires that won't go away. Scripture says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. If it were just personal disappointments, if that was the only thing we had to deal with, we might be able to bear it. But it feels unbearable at times when we see the prosperity of those around us who don't seem to care at all about God and about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look around and brothers and sisters, seems like the ungodly get along just fine without God. And then we start to ask ourselves, is godliness worth it in the end? And it's in those moments, brothers and sisters, it's in those moments 
when followers of Jesus Christ can be tempted by the green-eyed monster of envy. When you face temptations to envy, what do you do? Well, for the answer to that question, please open your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. In this psalm, we discover a moving autobiography of a man named Asaph. A man who describes his own crisis of faith that began with the sin of envy. And what Asaph teaches us is this. The antidote to envy is believing that God is good. The antidote to envy is believing that God is good. Asaph applies the doctrine of God to his trials. We spent time this weekend as men on the retreat thinking about the doctrine of God. Let me share you a little insight from a man named Herman, Herman Bavink. He said this, every attribute of God is precious to believers. They cannot do without any of them. They desire no other God than the only true God who has revealed himself in Christ. And they glory in all his perfections in truth. And friends, there is no other attribute of God perhaps that is more precious to us than our God is good. He is a good God. Do y'all say amen in this church? He is a good God. Amen. My prayer for every one of us this morning is that you would taste and see that the Lord is good. And that you would preach to your own hearts that God is good and that he does good to you. Because he has already given you the greatest gift of all. The good gift of himself in Jesus Christ our Lord. Psalm 73 describes two things. A common temptation, verses 1 to 15, and a God-centered solution, verses 16 to 28. If you're a note taker, there's the outline. It's a common temptation where he describes his common temptation to envy, one that we can all relate to. But then Asaph turns and shows us a God-centered solution to envy, beginning in verse 16. Before we jump in, let's just take a minute to figure out who is this Asaph. You see it right above your, your Bible in verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. All you need to know about Asaph, he was a Levite. He was a worship leader in Israel. Um, in, in, in 1 Chronicles 16, it says this, David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke and thank and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And Asaph was the chief. So Asaph was a, a worship leader. He, he, he led worship in Solomon's temple at the dedication. And he wrote some psalms. If you look in your Bibles, from Psalm 73 all the way to Psalm 83, they're all psalms of Asaph. Those are like his greatest hits. And this morning, we're going to look into what he tells us right at the beginning of this psalm about his own crisis of faith. He faced a crisis because 
of a temptation to envy. Look at verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph begins in verse 1, notice, by affirming the absolute goodness of God. So don't look at me, look at your Bibles. Do you see that? Truly God is what? Good. He's good to his people. He's good. He says he's good to Israel. Then he specifies to those who are pure in heart. What does he mean by that phrase? In this psalm, Asaph's going to contrast the believer with the ungodly or the wicked. And you'll notice in this psalm, in verse 7, the heart of the wicked overflows with folly. But in verse 13, the heart of God's people, of the believer, is a heart that is pure or clean. So when he says to those who are pure in heart, he's talking about those in Israel who trust in the Lord to believers. And what we says right at the outset of this, brothers and sisters, is that the goodness of God is the theological solution to your temptation to envy. The way you fight envy is by reminding yourself, preaching to yourself that God is good. But even so, even so, Asaph publicly acknowledges his struggle with this temptation. Think about this. He struggled with this sin. We're going to later find out that he didn't tell anyone about it. He writes it down in a psalm for everybody to read. But just take for, just as an aside, I was so deeply encouraged this weekend spending time with, with the men at the retreat. Particularly the way that the brothers openly shared their struggles and sins and temptations. Listen. That is God's grace in the life of this church. That's a work of God's spirit in the life of this church. Asaph publicly acknowledges his temptation. He describes it like trying to walk on a sheet of ice without slipping. He said he he lost his foothold. He almost stumbled. He nearly slipped. And what caused this? Verse 3, he tells you the reason. For I was envious. I was envious of the arrogant When I saw their prosperity, the prosperity of the wicked. When Asaph refers to the arrogant, he's referring to the social elite in Israel. He's going to tell us a little bit about them in a minute. But first, let me just explain a little bit about what this idea of envy means. What is envy? Envy is an evil desire that craves An advantage that someone else enjoys. So it's kind of like jealousy, but envy is different from jealousy. Jealousy, you can actually be jealous for good and right things. God is jealous. He's a jealous God, right? Envy is different. Envy is always a sin. Envy sees someone else who has an advantage or a blessing And you don't just want that blessing. You want that blessing and you don't want them to enjoy it. Children, envy is the opposite of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love does not what? Envy. Love doesn't get jealous of others. When love sees someone else with a blessing, love rejoices that they have received that blessing. Envy is, according to God's word, a soul-killing disease. Listen to what Proverbs says. Proverbs 14.30. A tranquil heart gives life, but envy makes the bones rot. Martin Luther once said that envy is self-torture. If you give in to envy, you're just torturing yourself. Envy seeks to destroy. If you read the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 15, we're told why the chief priests handed Jesus over to Pilate. Do you remember? Mark 15, 10 says it was because of their envy. So Asaph is envious of the arrogant, of these social elites in his day. Look what he says. Verse 4. He talks about their prosperity. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Also, look down in verse 12. Look down in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. So these folks, they don't seem to have any trials They don't have any trials until they die. They enjoy great physical health. They don't seem to get into trouble like other people do. They're free from burdens. They're always at ease. Life is easy for these people. Now, as I pondered, uh, how could I relate to Asaph? This is what I thought of. Um, Maybe maybe you can relate to this, especially if you're parents. Um, I thought about traveling with small children on airplanes. Have you ever had the experience you're boarding a flight and you've got multiple little kids and they may be whining and you're carrying one in your arms and, and the other one has an ear infection and you've been, you've been delayed in a terminal for like six hours and you're tired because you haven't got any sleep and the, the restaurant's closed and so you're hungry and uh, you're pulling the carry-on luggage that's like four tons and um, the plane is already super crowded and you're making your way uh, and you're hurting your family to the back of the plane. That's where your seats are. You get there. It's, it's like cattle class. And there's no leg room. And, and uh, poor ventilation. And the guy next to you is already dozed off. He's leaning on your side of the seat. And then who do you have to pass to get to your seat? Those awesome folks sitting in first class. Fully reclinable chairs. They boarded first. They're already enjoying some fresh beverage in a golden goblet. Eating on a leg of mutton. They're sending important emails. They're cutting deals. They're buying Bitcoin. Enjoying life. Living the dream. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. Now listen, envy doesn't see 2020, right? It doesn't have 2020 vision. Envy creates illusions. When we give in to envy, we're not seeing reality. We walk through that first class section, we have no idea the trials that those people are going through. 
When we envy, we only see other people and what they have. We don't see any of their problems. If we're envying anyone, especially someone who doesn't know God, it's like we're looking at them without our contacts in or our glasses on. But in a fallen world, we do look around and we see all these examples of people who don't have any regard for God and they seem to be prospering. Asaph says in in verse 6, he talks about their character. What, What are they like? Well, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They swell Their eyes swell out through fatness. That that just means that they're spiritually callous. They're insensitive to spiritual things. Asaph says their hearts overflow with follies. Because their heart is is ungodly, how do they speak? Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. How does their speech affect the godly? Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. That means the godly are intimidated by them. How do the wicked respond? Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? In other words, God doesn't know and God doesn't care. So after seeing all the prosperity of the wicked, notice Asaph makes a humble confession. Look at verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, Asaph is tempted by his envy to think the life of faith he's been living was just a waste. Maybe godliness isn't worth it. Have you ever felt this way? You've trusted the Lord. You've sought to live a life worthy of his honor. You've you've, you've pursued God with passion, as we sang about earlier. But the one thing you long for, the one thing you pray for, the Lord withholds from you. But others get it. Asaph struggled, but he seems to have kept these thoughts to himself. Look at verse 15. If I had said, so it's a hypothetical. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph didn't open his mouth. He, he, He kept these thoughts to himself. Even as he struggled, he didn't want to cause others to stumble by his words. He didn't publicize his thoughts. He didn't blog about it. He didn't send out a tweet. He didn't record something on Instagram. He didn't do any of that. It was only afterwards when God fully changed his perspective did he write down this psalm. So this is Asaph's temptation. And now I want to ask you, what about us? What are ways we can unroot and diagnose envy in our own hearts? Three brief diagnostics to ask ourselves. First, do you struggle with comparing yourself to others? In this psalm, Asaph tells us he began to struggle with envy because he was comparing himself and his situation with others. 
Do you spend more time comparing yourself with others than caring for others? When you scroll through your social media feeds, are you provoked to love the people you follow? Are you provoked to pray for them and to serve them? Or are you tempted to compare your situation with theirs? Your job, your spouse, your kids, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. The fires of envy are often stoked by the kindling of comparison. Second, do you... Do you struggle with a critical spirit towards others? No one is above criticism. Godly criticism is both good and right and edifying. But there's a difference between giving godly criticism and nurturing a critical spirit. If you constantly compare yourself with others and stoke the flames of envy, do you know what's going to happen? you're going to be critical towards all the people around you. Another word for that type of unfounded criticism is slander. In fact, slander is the evil twin brother of envy. 1 Peter 2.1, the apostle says, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Third, do you stir up controversy? Do you stir up controversy in the church or at work or especially online? Do you have an unhealthy craving for controversy? Now, you may say, well, I'm not really into controversy. I'm into debate. Okay, well, what do you ask yourself? How are you going about that debating, whether it's politics or religion, whatever. Paul, listen, listen to how Paul describes a false teacher. What does a false teacher sound like? Listen, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy. Controversy often fathers a wayward child called envy. So brothers and sisters, if any of this stuff landed... Follow Asaph's example and humbly confess and forsake your sin. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's the common temptation that Asaph shares. Now, Let's think about the God-centered solution that he describes in verses 16 to 28. There's two components of Asaph's God-centered solution. This is the God-centered remedy. The first is this. Fight envy by contemplating the judgment of God. Fight envy by contemplating the judgment of God. Look at verse 16. Do you see that little word, but? There's There's a contrast, a transition he's making. I struggled with this, but when I thought how to understand this, 
It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. That is their final destiny. Envying the wicked didn't refresh Asaph's soul. It just made him tired all over. And it led him to go into the the temple, the sanctuary of God, the place of God's presence. And he went to this place, perhaps to pray or to sing. And in that moment, Asaph saw beyond his earthly perspective and he considered the final destination of the wicked. He considered what the end of the wicked will lead. And he lived his life backwards. And he began to see, why would I ever envy knowing where they're headed? What caused Asaph to think about that? We're not told. Maybe he was praying and the Lord led these thoughts to him. Maybe he was considering the the smell of the sacrifices. Maybe he considered that the wicked have no substitute sacrifice. Maybe he thought about the priests and they don't have a mediator. We're not told. But brothers and sisters, what we can learn from this is if we would only consider what awaits the ungodly, if they do not repent, we would never desire to trade places with them. Verse 18, truly you set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. What Asaph says in in frightening language is that present experiences must be evaluated in light of the judgment that is coming. Proverbs 24 says, Do not be envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. After considering the final destiny of the wicked, after considering... God's coming judgment. Notice what he does. He, he confesses again, verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish. I acted like a brute. I was ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. When we give in to envy, when we're acting ignorant, ignorantly, we need to do what Asaph is doing. We need to confess it. We need to own it. We need to to share it. We need to acknowledge it. And that brings us, brothers and sisters, to the best part of the psalm. We don't just need to consider the judgment of God. But brothers, if we're going to fight envy, brothers and sisters, we need to cherish the goodness of God. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand. You see, 
envy focuses ourselves and our attention on what others have. But as Asaph goes to the sanctuary, he is reminded of what he has in the good gift of God himself. He recognizes because God is good, he gives his people continual presence. He says, I am continually with you, God. You hold my right hand. Think about that. If you are in Christ, if you're trusting in the Lord, God says, I'm with you. You can say to God, I am always with you. And he promises to say to you, I am with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with you. If you're struggling this morning, if you're in the middle of a trial, You've got to remind yourself that the Lord is present with you. He says to you, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But God doesn't just uphold us. Look at the text. He doesn't just uphold us with his right hand. Do you notice that tender, fatherly attention that God gives us? You hold my right hand. You see that? My baby girl, uh, Emmeline, she's not a baby anymore. She's in the sixth grade. But she's always going to be my baby girl. One of the many things that I adore about my daughter is that she still lets me hold her hand in public. I don't know how much longer that's going to last. It's a, it's a small thing, really, uh, to her, but it's a big deal to me. As, as her father, as her daddy, I want to give her every reason in the world to remind her that I love her. To remind her that I care for her. To remind her that I am there for her, that I'm, I'm by her side. And the Lord, our God, our heavenly father, he not only knows how to rescue his children from trials, but this verse says he holds our hand through the trials. William Plummer commenting on this verse said this, by faith, we have hold on God But our grip is often feeble. Our safety lies in this, that our father holds us with an omnipotent grip and he will never let us go. Because God is good, he gives us his wise counsel. Look at verse 24. You guide me. With your counsel. He's not just holding our hand. He's guiding us. How is he guiding us? He's guiding us with God's counsel. How did the book of Psalms begin? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Or stands in the way of sinners. Or sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law he meditates day and night. If God counsels his people by his word. How much more? Should we counsel one another by the word we've received from our Father? 
If he's counseling us, he's giving us his counsel to get us to glory. Oh, how we should use God's words in the lives of those around us to counsel and to encourage. Because God is good, he not only gives us counsel. Look at verse 24 again. He gives us his glorious acceptance. He counsels us. And then verse 24, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Where is God guiding his people? He's guiding you, brothers and sisters, to glory. You don't know how to get to glory, but he does. He's holding your hand and guiding you every step of the way. And when you get to glory, he will receive you. He will receive you. He will accept you. He holds your hands in your trials and through your trials all the way to glory. And he will receive you to himself. Because God is good, he's not only doing all these other things. But verse 25, because he is good, he gives us the incomparable inheritance of himself. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, these are some of the most amazing verses in the book of Psalms. If you don't have this, this, these two verses memorized, just leave right now. No, no, leave. Take, take this week. Take this week and memorize these verses. Psalm 73, verses 20. Four down to 26. This is just glory. Asaph is saying in verse 25 that there is nothing on earth worth comparing to having this good God as our gift, as our inheritance, as our portion forever. God is so good, He doesn't just give you good things as the Father of lights, He gives you Himself. What must a man possess if he possesses the possessor of all things? If you have Christ, you have everything. He has given you this incomparable inheritance and portion. Why is this word portion there? Think about it. Asaph was a Levite, remember? The Levites didn't have a portion in the inheritance in the land because God was their inheritance. If you're trusting in Christ, you're a Levite because <laughs> you get God as your inheritance. If you're in Christ, you have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you. The greatest gift, the greatest gift of the gospel is not forgiveness of sins. It is not redemption. It is the fact that we get God. Christ, the righteous, died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And in Christ, he has given you the everlasting portion of himself. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, said this, God is a portion that fire cannot burn, floods cannot drown, thieves cannot steal, enemies cannot capture, soldiers cannot plunder. A man may take away my gold from me, sickness may take away my health from me, 
death may take away my friends. And my family from me. Enemies may take away my liberty from me. But none of these can take away my God from me. He is my portion forever. Christian, this is your God. Behold your God. Why would we ever envy anyone who doesn't know and love and have this God? We ought to pray for them. We ought to plead for them. And in this way, the goodness of our God is the antidote to envy. And Asaph closes this amazing psalm by a call to trust and a call to tell. So let's close here with these last two verses, verses 27 and 28. First, he gives us a call to trust. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Are you trusting in this good God this morning? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this psalm is a warning. It's a warning about the end that awaits those who do not know God in Christ. Because of our sins, we've separated ourselves from God. We're far from God. But friend, even if you are far from God this morning, his omnipotent saving grace is not far from you. Even when we were far from him, he loves sinners. And so he holds out his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, clothed in the garments of his gospel to you this morning. Friend, know this, God is good. And because God is good, he cares about every single sin and injustice in this world. There are countless injustices that we don't even know about. God knows every single one of them. And he's good and he cares and he tells us that there won't be any sin ever committed in this world that is not brought into the light that is not brought to an accounting. But God is so merciful and gracious because of his love. He did something astounding. He did not wait for you to love him. He loved you when you were unlovable. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates and shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has provided a savior for the ungodly, one who died in the place for the ungodly, the eternal son of God who took on flesh, who came into the world to be the friend of sinners and to die in the place of sinners. He died to bring us to God. He died and rose again 
formed the grave three days later for our justification. And this morning, the risen, ascended Christ calls you to come to him by faith. To bring your sins to him that he will give you his righteousness. He says to you, receive me in the empty hands of faith. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing all of our days in malice and envy. We hated others and we were hated by others. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Hear those words. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy. Friends, Jesus Christ isn't simply good. He is goodness incarnate. And in the sweetest of exchanges, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died, brothers and sisters, for our sins, even our sins of envy. And right now, Jesus is again offering himself to us. Verse 28 says, we also have a summons to tell. But it is, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Brothers and sisters, if you know the goodness of God this morning in Christ, you are called by that verse to tell others. Who in your life this week, who in your life this week, can you tell about the goodness of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? If we preach this to others, we must preach it to ourselves. Christian, you have no good apart from this God. No good thing does he withhold from you in Christ. The Lord has drawn you to himself. His nearness is your good. And in your troubles... Jesus is always near. He is nearer to you than by the light by which you see. He is nearer to you than the air that you breathe. Jesus is nearer to you than you are to yourself. And not a sigh or a thought or a tear ever escapes his notice. He is working all things together for your good. Christian. And surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our good God and heavenly father. We pray that by your spirit, that you would overwhelm our hearts, that you would cause us to delight in your goodness, to rejoice in your faithfulness, and to grasp even for a moment 
the amazing mercy that you have lavished upon sinners like us. We thank you that you have given us in Jesus everything. Help us to delight in him and to tell others of his goodness. We ask this in Jesus, our great Savior's sake. Amen.